University of Otago academics say the country needs to immediately ban the practice of men and women sharing hospital rooms. They argue in a paper out today the practice of mis- mixed hospital rooms undermines patient security and dignity. Mixed gender rooms have been banned in the United Kingdom since 2010 and there have been attempts to prohibit the practice in some Australian states. The paper's lead author is Dr Cindy Towns. Uh, Morena, welcome. Great uh, to have you with us. Kia ora, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. So can you give us an idea of what happens in hospitals? Is this common? Uh, yeah, it is. So there's a couple of studies. Just going to put you in front of a mic. Just There you go. You're off and running now. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, so, yeah, there's two studies. Um, we had been noticing uh, a change in practice over time, um, and clinicians were uh, very concerned. So we ran a study at uh, Wellington Regional Hospital. We looked at nine years of this. Um, we found that it was common. Um, almost half of people were affected by it. Uh, it was increasing uh, over time uh, and disproportionately affected vulnerable older adults. In which wards, in which circumstances, in which wards would it be happening? So uh, it was happening uh, all over, uh, and we did exempt the really high acuity uh, areas like ICU and CCU. Um, Particularly concern was 85% uh, on uh, one of our main uh, medical wards. And I'll just mention, so that was the first uh, study. The second study which comes out today, which you've mentioned, is an ethical analysis of that, showing that the practice is not just unethical, but it's unsafe. Can you speak to both of those things, please? Okay. So everybody has the right uh, to dignity and personal security. That's a basic human right that's in all of our rights documents. And that's where patient rights come through if you look at the Health and Disability Code of Rights and the Healthcare Charter in Australia uh, is similar. And if we take safety first, um, unfortunately when you place uh, male and female patients, uh, particularly with the rates of cognitive impairment that we've got in the same hospital room, you get a huge amount of intrusion. Uh, You get... uh, numerous incidents of indecent exposure and unfortunately um, we have had some assaults. Uh, The other thing we get is we get uh, women with a background of um, sexual assault which unfortunately is highly prevalent in New Zealand at 26% and they're terrified Catherine and that's really hard to see and it's traumatising to them uh, and it's largely avoidable. What, have you done qualitative work as part of this as well as the quantitative? Have people Um, told you stories? uh, Yes, People, I'm a, I'm a physician, so I work on the ground. I work at the coalface, so I see it. Uh, we've had numerous complaints. I've put in uh, numerous incident reports. But we've also got data from surveys done in the UK uh, and also reports like the Garling Report out of New South Wales and Australia uh, from 2008, which documents the fear and distress. Even if these, uh, you know, assault is not realised or the fear is not realised, there's psychological harm there. And you should feel, of all the places in the world, to feel safe. A hospital, when you're acutely unwell, uh, should be at the top of the list. How many beds do we have in a typical ward? Um, I don't actually know the answer to that Can question, four Catherine. Or six so, so the rooms are largely, um, you know, one, two, or four. Mm. But it, if you look across Wellington and Hutt, our single occupancy rooms are less than a third. Mm. Now, if you think about it, how do we manage anything well uh, without? a high proportion of single rooms. Think about the infection control for the pandemic, delirium and dementia, which are highly prevalent in society and increasing, about a quarter of patients. Is is that a real issue? Just to cut to the chase, is that a real issue? Often it's people who have dementia or who are otherwise impaired whose behaviour is prevalent in this. Not not exclusively, but is that a a matter to be 
up front about it's, ab- ab- absolutely we're, we're going to have 170,000 people with dementia by 2050 um, and we know that there are behavioural and psychological disturbances that go with that but if you look outside of that just at delirium which is an acute confusional state treatable reversible it's about a quarter of our patients now that puts people at risk because they do have reduced insight and judgement and actually, orientation it's actually putting the patient themselves at risk as well oh, as a this is, they, these aren't you know the elderly elderly men unfortunately that are that have um you know, perpetrated some of these events. They're utterly distressed. They often have no memory of it. The the next morning, they're not trying to do harm. They they themselves are impaired. So, what's happening overseas? We mentioned the UK. Although I was reading an article saying that it doesn't appear to be meeting its own ambitions uh, on this. <laughs> Is that understanding it? Public yeah. health, public health systems, yeah, uh, not meeting their ambitions. Yeah. But but what was the decision made? How and 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 how was it introduced in 2010? So, look, and yeah, there was. There was public outcry and political outcry saying, actually, we're hurting people. Um, and so they put in place a national policy um, with public reporting. And you're right, they're, they're not getting it right all the time. But my goodness, they're trying um, and they're doing a lot better than us. Now, the the uh, UK doctors that I have, I've got a, a young couple working with me at the moment, and they just came in and went, oh, my goodness, what's happening? That would never happen in the in uh, in the UK. So it might happen, but it would be the exception rather than the It would the be role. the exception rather than rule, whereas here, it's con- same with our US doctors. They come and they go, Oh my God! That would you know we have some wonderful US doctors on on our wards at the moment. They're like, how does this happen? You know, it so would be logistically, illegal. what's involved? Because this is the other matter. Um, with and we know particularly in winter, for example, we know the stresses that hospitals come under trying to get beds anywhere. And then you're managing what stage someone is at in their journey, whether they're coming out of an acute ward and into a, a medical ward or. Um, you know, there are lots of moving parts here. Can you yeah. explain them yeah. and how you would factor this in? So there is the false impression that this will, if we respect basic human rights, that will somehow impede patient flow, and that, above all, is the most important thing. 2010, it's been in place since the UK. There is no published data suggesting that. And we actually ran our own local pilot with the wonderful medical nurses on Five South at Wellington Hospital. And we showed that we almost doubled our compliance rates without any delays in transfer from I, I ED. Mean, broadly, are you talking, and um, we need to discuss all genders here, but are you talking broadly between male, female? Is it being probably 50 50 anyway? Does it skew in some wards versus another? Um, it would skew in some wards, say, in urology. Um, I think uh, given the perhaps greater longevity of women, it might but be skewed overall, in favour. But largely it's male and female. Flow, th- yeah. there will be a reasonable... As an, as an ED nurse said when we started rolling this out, oh, Cindy, this doesn't make a difference. We've got so many bloody people in our corridors that it's not going to be difficult to, to choose the right one. And they're right. And it's all our medical patients lining those ED corridors. You don't hear about it. It's medical patients lining those Explain ED corridors. Explain what medical is, technically. So you get a chest infection... Uh, you're coming to me. You get a skin infection, a bladder infection, you fall over, you're off your legs, you get a bit confused, all of those things. So general medical wards are our largest, um, la- probably our largest admitting wards in, in the hospital. Is it where you go after surgery often too? No, that's post-surgical, okay. so so there's, there's surgical. But the other thing to think about is it was sort of a bit invisible. We took most of the COVID patients, but you only hear about ICU. You hear about ED blockages, that's our patients. The mental health crisis, the patients still come into the hospital. Where do they come? They get defaulted to me. So, so these are medical patients. Largely, they're, they're vulnerable. It does affect all wards, um, but ours seem to be 
um, affected the most. And one of those reasons is just really poor design, really poor so design. So it's the physical design of the hospital rather than some logistics whiz-bang so, computer system. So, so if you look at the... the, the, the yeah, I'm being speculative, but the, but the drivers, the, the most obvious one in that study uh, was design. So MAPU, the medical assessment um, uh, unit at Wellington Hospital, was never supposed to be a ward. Um, it was repurposed, but it wasn't given any resources for repurposing. It was supposed to be an after-hours service. So that's got two long, uh, war, uh, two long corridors of patients and a couple of open four-bedders. I mean, we actually call it the medical admissions and delirium exacerbation unit. Unit and we could add infection there too because it's that bad. And I know there's some work around that. I know there's some work around that, but how that became a proper ward without then being having additional renovations made to it sort of beggars belief. Um, so that's the ward so that we're working with. So you're just actually lacking walls in we're, some instances. We are lacking walls, walls and, and toilet facilities. Yeah, it's that, it's that simple really. Walls and doors and of course everything would be easier if we had more beds. Uh, that would be easier, but but we can actually we've actually proved that we can significantly improve things uh, and not delay transfers from ED just by introducing policy. So yes, we need better design; that'll take time. But if we introduce a national policy, we'll significantly improve things. If you introduce the policy, who then implements it? Like what what would be involved in that patient flow adjustment? Um, Common sense would be involved in that patient flow adjustment, and we're doing it now on medicine. We've got some wonderful nursing staff uh, on, on our medical wards, and we need to roll that out. And actually, we've been doing a, a, a good job at Wellington Hospital, but we need to roll it out to the rest of the, the floors. It's kind of a, it's a change in structure and how we do handover, a change in culture, um, but getting that at a national level, uh, I think, would be best. Just some of the feedback that's come in. As a retired registered nurse, I saw the effects of mixed wards years ago. My elderly mother was very traumatised by the situation the only female in a room of men. Someone else says, my father, who was in and out of hospital with cancer before he died in January, our condolences, was in mixed wards in the Hutt Medical Ward. It was particularly disturbing when once there was a fragile elderly lady who was placed opposite a prisoner and his prison guards. It was bad enough for us as a family dealing with this terrible news with my dad's illness to have a prisoner next to us, but an elderly woman, I couldn't believe he had six people in his room all sharing a bathroom. One more, my mother, age 93, was recently in a ward again in hut with three men. Quite by accident, the elderly gent opposite regularly exited his bed with his legs akimbo. Fortunately, mum was so unwell she wasn't aware. One of the others was an aggressive dementia payment, uh, patient who was very loud and quite scary. I can't understand why they have mixed wards when it would be easy to swap a bed around, surely. Yep. So this is a point. Often the people, often people aren't deliberately doing anything. No. It is just a reality of the situation there. It's, it's, a, it's a deterioration in a basic standard of care that never used to happen. And I'm, I'm so thankful for you reading out those experiences because our older adults don't complain. And they should. There should be public outcry because the stories get worse than that, Catherine, and they're constant and it's so morally distressing. Who needs to take this and run with it? Um, this uh, this needs to be Te order the ministry. This needs to be a specific national policy because what we're doing now is not working and there needs to be culture and education around that and it can't just come from one uh, doctor who cares a lot who's already working full-time uh, in an overwhelmed system. Is this literally why you did this work? Yeah. Thank you, and thank you for the other work, and we will endeavour to find someone in Te Ora. You might be able to help me with where to begin to start the process. Thank you, uh, Dr Cindy Towns. Uh, we do have a statement. We sought one from Te Ora. 
and its national lead for quality and patient saving, uh, safety, David Bunting, says there isn't a consistent policy or approach and there will be cases where a hospital can't offer a single gender room because of care concerns such as intensive care. You've already mentioned you don't consider that relevant, right? Okay. Several hospitals do put patients in single gender wards where possible and the issue of patient privacy and dignity is important to Te Ora. And he adds the creation of Te Ora as an opportunity to develop more national policies around patient safety. We share the researchers' desire to ensure that patients are safe with welcome the opportunity to discuss the research further. Meet David Bunting. Keep in touch with us. I, uh, I look forward to that. Thank you very much. Thank you. That is up to Cindy Town.